We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And away we go, episode 316 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Tuesday, May 17th, 2022. It is the day on which we will have the 2022 NBA Draft Lottery. Yes, the NBA Draft Lottery will take place on Tuesday night. The Wizards, our Wizards, who pretty much never have any good luck in the NBA Draft Lottery, have the 10th best chance of winning this year's NBA Draft Lottery. Uh, The Wizards have a 3% chance of winning this year's NBA Draft Lottery. You know, we've been talking about the Capitals having so infrequently advanced past the second round of the Stanley Cup playoffs, right? 29 of the Caps, 32 all-time postseason appearances have ended in a first or second round. Well, our Wizards haven't advanced past the second round of the NBA playoffs since 1979, okay? That freaking fact is the overarching thing over everything that happens with the Wizards. Now, a realistic path to our Wizards finally becoming capable of advancing past the second round of the NBA playoffs would be the Wizards landing a true superstar in an NBA draft. And while you don't have to have a high first round pick to get a superstar in an NBA draft, having a high pick certainly does help. Now, am I counting on Tuesday night being a night on which our Wizards will do well in the NBA draft lottery and land themselves a high pick in the 2022 NBA draft? No, I am not. Again, the Wizards pretty much never have any good luck in the NBA draft lottery, but we still can hope. Uh, hello and welcome to a Tuesday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. I have not one, but two special guests for you on the show. First of all, next segment, I'm talking commanders, specifically an update to those recent comments from defensive coordinator Jack Del Rio from Commander Jack uh, about a defensive back or multiple defensive backs no-showing part of the team's off-season program last year. Jack has said that the no-showing was part of why Washington's defense last season was disappointing. We on Monday got some insight shed on what Jack was talking about. I will share that insight and comment 
on that insight. Uh, and then we get to our guests. First up, I'll talk Sam Howell with Adam Lucas. Uh, he is the co-host of the Carolina Insider podcast and is a writer for GoHeels.com, which is the official website for North Carolina Athletics. Uh, Adam will tell us all about what the commanders are getting in Sam Howell and will tell us about both Sam Howell, the quarterback, and Sam Howell, the guy. Also will shed light on whether Howell's 2021 season at Carolina was that much worse than his 2020 season because that 2021 season, in theory anyway, is a big part of why Howell fell to the fifth round in the 2022 NFL Draft. And then I'll talk Capitals with Peter Hassett, co-founder of a terrific Caps blog, Russian Machine Never Breaks. I read it all of the time. If you're a Caps fan, there's a good chance that you read Russian Machine all of the time as well. Uh, Peter is a really smart guy, huge Caps fan. He has written and talked about the Caps for years. I've had him on my shows for years. Uh, Peter and I will get into what went down for the Caps in their first round series loss to the Florida Panthers in this year's Stanley Cup playoffs. Uh, also, we'll get into the bigger picture for the Caps. Should they blow it all up off losing in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs in each of the last four seasons? Now, trust me, if you're a Caps fan, you do not want to miss my conversation with Peter Hassett. Uh, I will talk Nationals. Uh, they on Monday night had what I think was their worst loss of the season so far, an 8-2 loss at the Miami Marlins. Uh, things keep getting worse for the Nats. Not better. Uh, they just are a really bad team, and they certainly appear to be playing at their worst right now. Uh, and I'll talk Orioles. Their offense continues to be among the worst in the majors, although the O's are missing some key players right now. But still, a 6-2 loss to the Major League Best New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Monday night as uh, Kyle Bradish had some problems. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Kyle Goins for this episode 316 of the Al Galdi podcast. Writes Kyle, congrats on over 300 episodes. Love the pod. Keep up the excellent work. Maybe you can impart some stone cold wisdom to us from Galdi. 316. Well, thank you for the email, Kyle. Yes, uh, arguably the single biggest draw in pro wrestling history. Stone Cold Steve Austin, his most famous phrase ever, Austin 316, a play on John 316. Now, Steve Austin said Austin 316 for the first time in a post-match promo after whooping up on Jake the Snake Roberts to win the 1996 King of the Ring tournament. The line, as many of you probably know, is a classic line. Uh, in fact, here is that line. You sit there and you thump your Bible and you say your prayers and it didn't get you anywhere. Talk about your Psalms, talk about John 3.16. Austin 3.16 says I just whipped your ass. Yeah, there you go. Maybe the single most famous line in pro wrestling history. The millions of dollars that that line ended up making for Steve Austin, can never be overstated. Now, I'm not sure what Galdi 316 would mean. I would have to come up with something catchy. But yes, this is episode 316 of the Al Galdi podcast. Uh, email from Mike Holmes on a potential trade for the Commanders. Writes Mike, I feel that if Deron Payne isn't going to be re-signed, then we need to trade him. But what if we wait until training camp and a quarterback on another team gets hurt for the season to add value to a trade of pain, we could include Taylor Heineke. This might be our best way 
to maximize the trade. Uh, thank you for the email, Mike. I like how my man Mike is thinking. You know, I actually brought this up a few weeks ago, the notion of the commanders trading Taylor Heineke to a team that suffers a major injury at quarterback. Now, there are two levels to potentially trading Heineke, what should be the case and what likely is the case. What should be the case is that the commanders should be open to a potential trade of Taylor Heineke because this coming season is going to be the final season of a two-year contract extension to which he was signed last offseason. So he next offseason could leave the commanders for nothing via unrestricted free agency. Uh, Also, the commanders now have Sam Howell, right? And he potentially uh, could at least be a quality backup quarterback. However, what I believe is likely the case is that the commanders are not interested in trading Taylor Heineke, just like I do not think that the commanders are interested in trading Deron Payne, a.k.a. Deron Payne. Deron Payne. Yes, Robert, thank you. Uh, Deron Payne. And I don't think that the commanders are interested in trading Tay-Tay or Dayron because the commanders are desperate to have a good 2022 season and trading Heineke would lessen the team's depth at quarterback. And if this coming season Carson Wentz gets injured and or struggles and Sam Howell is a major work in progress, then what at quarterback? I mean, Taylor Heineke is a really nice quarterback insurance policy. So I'm not holding my breath on the commander's trading Heineke. And, you know, I don't think that the commanders should be like actively shopping Heineke. But if a team this summer becomes desperate at quarterback due to injury or whatever, then yeah, the commanders should be open to trading Heineke. But would they be open to trading Heineke is a different conversation. But being open to trading Heineke is the forward thinking way of approaching this. Well, speaking of forward thinking, the law firm of Paulson and Nace is forward thinking with how it represents clients and wins cases. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. Call 202-902-7611 and make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. For nearly 40 years, the Washington, D.C. personal injury lawyers of Paulson and Nace have represented plaintiffs in medical malpractice, drug, and other product liability claims, as well as countless other personal injury matters, all the way through trial and jury verdicts, winning and securing multi-million dollar verdicts and settlements for clients. Paulson and Nace is a Washington, D.C.-based family law firm that offers tenacious advocacy for personal injury and medical malpractice victims throughout Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. If you or your family is dealing with a personal injury or medical malpractice matter, contact Paulson and Nace and tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. The phone number is 202-902-7611. You can schedule a no-obligation appointment, yet you're obligated to nothing. You have questions, you have concerns, lean on the expertise of Paulson and Nace. 202-902-7611. And make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. You know, I've known the Naces for two plus decades. These guys know what they're doing. Chris Nace is a past president of the DC Trial Lawyers. Matt Nace is a member of the board of the DC Trial Lawyers. The attorneys at Polson and Nace offer clients in-depth explanation of their rights regarding treatment and consent and provide comfort and options to families. Polson and Nace works with you. The family of Polson and Nace can help your family make difficult decisions, and can provide the answers to your questions when you need answers the most. It's very simple. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. Call 202-902-7611 to schedule a no-obligation appointment and tell Paulson and Nace 
that Algaldi sent you. You can also visit PaulsonandNace.com. That's PaulsonandNace.com. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let the family of Paulson and Nace take care of your family. All right, so as you may recall, I on the show for two Mondays ago, May 9th, what was episode 310 of the Al Galdi podcast, discussed some very telling comments from Commander's Defensive Coordinator Jack Del Rio to Julie Donaldson, who is the team's Senior Vice President of Media and Content. The comments were made in an interview that Julie did with Jack for the Commander's website. The interview came out on May 6th. Jack, in the interview, which was an in-house team-conducted interview, unsolicited, brought up that a Washington defensive back, or that multiple Washington defensive backs, had not attended the entirety of the team's 2021 offseason program, and that that had been a reason for Washington's defensive struggles in the 2021 season. Here was some of what Jack said. I think, you know, with our whole secondary here and working unlike last year, um, which was a problem, you know. Uh, some of it showed during the course of the year. I was disappointed last year when we did not have full participation. I thought it contributed to us having a poor year. All right, so those were very significant comments from Jack Del Rio. Again, they came in an in-house team-conducted interview. Again, they were unsolicited. And I, on episode 310, talked about those comments quite a bit. And I still feel like not a big enough deal has been made about those comments. Uh, Washington's run defense in the 2021 regular season was good. Washington's pass defense in the 2021 regular season, especially in the first half of the 2021 regular season, was a huge disappointment. Uh, The reasons for that have never been clear. Here we had Jack volunteering a reason at least a reason according to him. Now, one of the things that I brought up when I initially talked about all of this was that it wasn't clear what exact portion of Washington's 2021 offseason program that the defensive back or defensive backs had no-showed. There are various phases to an NFL team's offseason program. Jack Del Rio clearly was talking about the voluntary phase of Washington's 2021 offseason program, but he wasn't necessarily talking about the practice portion of Washington's 2021 offseason program. The practice portion of an NFL team's offseason program is what gets the most attention in an NFL team's offseason program, but the offseason program also consists of voluntary workouts and meetings. We right now have the Commander's 2022 offseason program taking place, but we have yet to have actual Commander's practices take place in this 2022 offseason. Well, Commander's Insider Ben Standing of The Athletic on Monday came out with a piece in which he added some clarity to what Jack Del Rio was talking about. Now, the day after these comments from Jack came out, I actually called Ben to talk to him about what Jack had said. Ben at the time was unaware that Jack had said what he said, but Ben has very good contacts and he has gained some insight into what Jack was talking about. Wrote Ben in this piece that came out on Monday, quote, Del Rio's reference is not about phase three, the on-field workouts. According to a source, the mention was about last year's phase two, where there was no full participation from cornerbacks and safeties. Phase three is the only portion of the voluntary off-season program observed by media members and where the PR staff provides participation updates. What is phase two? 
basically walkthroughs as coaches dive into the playbook and game plan with players lined up. Per the NFLPA website, coaches are allowed on the field. Teams can run individual and perfect play drills, but no offense versus defense or one-on-ones and no helmets. It's unclear which players skipped those voluntary workouts, end quote. So we still don't know for sure who Jack Del Rio was talking about, but we do now know that he was talking about phase two of Washington's 2021 offseason program as opposed to phase three, which is the phase that features actual practices and also features the mandatory minicamp. And this all makes sense because the only players who we ever heard about skipping at least some of Washington's practices last offseason were Chase Young and Montez Sweat. None of the defensive backs ever came up and nobody skipped the mandatory minicamp. That's a big deal if a player skips the mandatory minicamp. Skipping the mandatory minicamp can cost a player big time money. Uh, We dealt with that in 2010 when Albert Hainsworth famously skipped the Redskins mandatory minicamp. I'll never forget that. I was at Redskins Park that day covering the mandatory minicamp. Mike Shanahan was furious. Anyway, so Washington's defensive backs in the 2021 offseason attended Washington's practices, but one or more of the defensive backs did not attend at least some of Washington's pre-practice activities. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, what's significant about all of this isn't so much who did or didn't attend what last offseason, or even whether Jack Del Rio is right in saying that a Washington defensive back or multiple defensive backs no-showing some of the team's offseason program last year is part of why Washington's pass defense in the 2021 regular season, especially in the first half of the 2021 regular season, was so bad. What's significant here to me is that Jack Del Rio, one year later in an in-house team-conducted interview, unsolicited, felt the need to reveal this. Basically, nobody outside of the team knew about a Washington defensive back or multiple defensive backs, no-showing some of the team's off-season program last year until Jack said what he said. Why did he reveal this? Why did he put this out there? Did he reveal this because he felt the need to explain why his past defense last season was so bad? Did he reveal this because he's still angry at the Washington defensive back or the multiple Washington defensive backs who no-showed some of the team's off-season program last year? Like, why did Jack bring this up a year later? Well, he did bring this up, and that in and of itself is notable. Like, that to me is the ultimate takeaway here, that Jack felt the need, felt compelled a year later to reveal this. Whatever the case, the commander's pass defense this coming season, it needs to be a lot better than the pass defense was in the 2021 regular season. Washington for the 2021 regular season finished number 28 out of 32 NFL teams in pass defense per football outside DVOA metric. That's terrible. Uh, Washington for the 2021 regular season finished number 31 out of 32 NFL teams in lowest opponents third down efficiency at 48.5%. That's terrible. Now, I do believe that the commander's pass defense this coming season will be better than the team's pass defense was in the 2021 regular season. A, because it would be hard for the pass defense to be much worse. Uh, B, because the pass defense was better in the second half of the 2021 regular season, especially 
during the four-game winning streak in November and early December. So some things did get figured out. And C, because the commanders this coming season will not be facing the murderer's row of opposing quarterbacks that the team faced last season. But to whatever extent there were internal problems on Washington's defense last season, and I early in the season brought up the idea that there may have been internal problems on Washington's defense. And some people got mad at me for saying that, but the truth is the truth. And there were internal problems on Washington's defense last season. Uh, those problems better be fixed. These comments from Jack Del Rio really stand out. And again, it's not so much about who he was talking about or about the validity of what he said, as the standing out is about Jack saying what he said in the first place. Well, perhaps you saw this on Monday. Pro Football Focus's lead NFL analyst, Sam Monson, a multi-time guest on the Al Galdi podcast, came out with a piece in which he graded all 32 NFL teams off-seasons. Now, of course, the 2022 NFL off-season isn't over. Uh, to say nothing of us having no idea how teams moves this offseason will work out. But that is the fun of this time of year in the NFL, passing judgment on things about which we truly have no clue. Uh, well, Sam gave the Commanders 2022 offseason a grade of C-. Uh, that grade was comprised of a free agency grade of below average and a draft grade of C+. Wrote Sam Monson, quote, Washington feels like the team that was stung by a bad outcome to a good process last offseason and was determined to go in a different direction without much concern for what that direction was. With a good roster a season ago that had no real chance at an elite quarterback, the commander signed Ryan Fitzpatrick with the hope that average quarterback play could be enough to keep them in the playoff hunt. Fitzpatrick was injured early and the season unraveled, causing them to jump at the chance to trade for Carson Wentz as an alternative. Wentz being desperately shopped by a staff that just put their hopes on him a year before should probably have been a fairly significant warning sign, but the team evidently felt it had little choice. In addition to the Wentz move, the commander signed guard Andrew Norwell in free agency, but only after letting a much better player, Brandon Sheriff, walk to sign for big money in Jacksonville. Their free agency overall was one of losing more players than they signed, and Wentz needs to find something to his game that hasn't been there in a few years to make that move anything other than a misstep. In the draft, Washington seemed to consistently reach on players relative to their position on PFF's big board of the consensus board. Jahan Dodson ranked 40 places lower on the PFF board than the commanders selected him in the draft, and only Sam Howell, who was selected in the fifth round, represented any significant value relative to expected draft position. Howell, who plays the most important position in the game, has a chance to redeem the entire offseason if he's a better player than the NFL thinks, but that's a long shot. End quote. So there's a lot there. Uh, I do not get caught up in offseason grades, okay? So I do not go nuts over Sam Monson giving the Commanders 2022 offseason a grade of C minus. Uh, offseason grades are fun, they're also totally meaningless. But the two things that stood out to me the most from what Sam wrote had to do with quarterbacks, uh, neither of whom was Carson Wentz. Uh, I thought that Sam's point about Ryan Fitzpatrick was interesting. You know, I last year on the podcast had a really good conversation with Sam about Washington having signed Fitzpatrick. It does get forgotten that Fitzpatrick was supposed to be 
Washington's QB1 last season, only ended up playing for less than a half of a game as he suffered that season-ending right hip subluxation in the loss to the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field in Week 1. Uh, by the way, we are hearing nothing about Ryan Fitzpatrick these days. I mean, it's like he has disappeared. There's no news. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, he hasn't done any interviews. Like, nothing. The guy hasn't spoken publicly in like forever, and he seemingly never comes up anywhere. Kind of strange. Uh, the other quarterback mention from Sam Monson that jumped out to me was the mention of Sam Howell. Uh, as we had Sam on Sam, quote, Howell, who plays the most important position in the game, has a chance to redeem the entire offseason if he's a better player than the NFL thinks, but that's a long shot. And quote, Put aside whether the Commander's 2022 offseason needs redeeming, okay? I think that that's very debatable. Uh, it is true that the Commander's taking Sam Howell in the fifth round of the 2022 NFL Draft could prove to be a steal. It was a year ago at this time that Howell was viewed as the potential number one pick in the 2022 Draft. The Commander's ended up getting Howell with the number 144 pick in the 2022 Draft. Now, obviously, there are reasons that Howell fell in the 2022 draft. There also is the reality that so few non-first-round quarterbacks become quality NFL quarterbacks. But this 2022 draft was different, very different for quarterbacks. Only one quarterback was taken over the first 73 picks of the draft. And maybe that was because this 2022 quarterback class isn't good. Or maybe the NFL was too harsh on this quarterback class. You know, Carson Wentz is the commander's starting quarterback. Right now, there is no question of that. Taylor Heineke is the commander's number two quarterback. Right now, there is no question of that. And Sam Howell is the commander's number three quarterback. Right now, there is no question about that. Uh, that's how things stand right now. But as we know, things can change. Washington has started at least three quarterbacks in each of the last four regular seasons, 2018 through 2021. Who knows what's going to happen at quarterback for the Commanders this coming season? And while Carson Wentz right now is the most important quarterback on the Commanders roster, Sam Howell right now is the biggest wild card at quarterback on the Commanders roster. There's also this regarding Sam Howell. Uh, ESPN NFL insider Jeremy Fowler on May 9th reported that the Seattle Seahawks had had interest in drafting Sam Howell. Quote, Sam Howell had a lot of support in Seattle's building as a developmental quarterback to take on day two or three, but even as Howell slipped to the fifth round, the Seahawks stayed away from quarterback, addressing several other needs instead, end quote. And so to find out more about what the commanders might have in Sam Howell, I'm very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast, a man who knows Sam Howell well, Adam Lucas. He is the co-host of the Carolina Insider Podcast. Uh, he's also a writer for GoHeels.com, which is the official website for North Carolina Athletics. You can follow Adam on Twitter, at JAdamLucas. Adam, very nice to talk to you. How are you? Good. I appreciate you having me. I appreciate you coming on. So there's a lot of interest here in the Washington, D.C. area in Sam Howell. The Commanders franchise has been searching for a franchise quarterback for decades. Not that Howell has been drafted to necessarily be a franchise quarterback, but as we know, you never know. Uh, so with Howell, you covered him for all three of his seasons as Carolina's starting quarterback. What are the things that stood out to you the most about Howell? 
Well, I think a, a couple things, and these would mostly be off the field things, and then we can talk about the on the field things. Off the field, his teammates absolutely love him. Uh, he is not a guy, even though he was the starting quarterback from day one that he arrived on campus, he had been committed to Florida State and switched to Carolina as just a, a huge recruit uh, in the early stages of the second Mac Brown era but never seemed overly impressed with himself. He never put himself above any of his other teammates, which as you know, there's, there's been some NFL talent to come through Chapel Hill during the Sam Howell era. Uh, and, and universally he's loved in the locker room. Um, so I, I think, I think that's important. And I just think the the fact that he is not, He's not a prima donna. Uh, he's not going to cause problems. He's going to ask the Washington staff to give him a list of things to work on, and then he's going to work on exactly what they tell him to get better at and probably get better at those things. Um, so I think you've got, you've got a hard worker. Uh, you've got somebody who, who is going to be popular in the locker room and is going to know how to lead the way that you want a quarterback to know how to lead. And then, by the way, also, uh, he's a really good quarterback. And if Washington had picked him last year at this time, you would be saying that they had just picked a franchise quarterback and now they've gotten him in the fifth round. Yeah, and that's a big part of why so many people like the commanders having drafted Sam Howell so much, the potential enormous value of getting him in the fifth round. As far as Howell on the field, uh, what were his biggest positives on the field during his time as Carolina's starting quarterback? Well, I I think he's the best passer that Carolina's ever had. And I understand that Carolina hasn't had a ton of great passers, uh, but they've had a pretty prolific offense here in the last decade or so. And he can make all the throws. Uh, He can especially throw those deep balls that De'Ami Brown is well accustomed to running under and taking in for touchdowns. Uh, But he can also throw some of the shorter stuff. I think it probably hurt him that he had to run the ball so much this past year. But that's what happens when you had Javante Williams and Michael Carter on the team the year before that, and then they left. You need someone to run the ball. Um, so I'm a, I'm a little surprised that it became a negative to him that he did run it so much when, honestly, he was doing what the team needed him to do. Uh, Carolina needed a rushing attack, and he was the one best equipped to provide that. And if you watch the clips, as I'm sure uh, a lot of Washington fans have, I mean, he wasn't just sort of scampering around. He was running over people. And uh, so he, he has that ability, but I don't think he necessarily has to be that guy. One of the things that came up with Sam Howell's rushing numbers surging last season was that he was too willing to run, that he at times took off before he should have. What's your take on that criticism? Well, I think you always see that with college quarterbacks. I think you also have to bear in mind that Carolina's offensive line was not good. And so there were a lot of times where there weren't times to make multiple reads before you're about to be sacked and lose 12 yards. Um, And two, I think he also realized that his running was pretty much one of the best offensive weapons that Carolina had. The the Tar Heels had Josh Downs, a wide receiver, who caught pretty much everything. And beyond that, they were not very successful in the passing game because they just didn't have a lot of receivers after, again, De'Ami Brown had left, uh, Daz Newsom had left. Um, so a lot of his, his former targets were gone. And once you get past looking at Josh Downs, if the other option is throw to someone I'm not 100% sure is going to catch it or I'm going to run and I feel like I can probably make six yards, um, I think he, he probably made the prudent choice in a lot of those situations. 
Another criticism of Sam Howell is that his 2021 junior season was not as good as his 2020 sophomore season, and that obviously is part of why he fell to the fifth round in the 2022 draft. Was Howell worse in 2021 as compared to in 2020, or was the reality more that those around him in 2021 were worse than those around him in 2020? Yeah, the the team was nowhere near as good. I, I mean, I've been I, I've heard that one of the storylines is well, he was really good when he had NFL talent around him, and then all that NFL talent left, and he wasn't as good. Well, he is going to the NFL. That's where the NFL talent went. Um, he, he's going to have NFL talent around him. Uh, he's going to have capable running backs. He's going to have multiple receiving options. And I think it's important too that uh, assuming things go the way we all think it'll go, he won't have to be the guy from day one. Uh, he can sit there and learn some stuff and, and find out what they want him to work on and get better at that. And I think by next year at this time, we're probably talking about a quarterback who some folks are excited about. Were you surprised that Sam Howell in the 2022 draft fell to the fifth round? Yes, I was. I mean, I I sort of casually watched the first round and then really started paying attention in the second round and thought, well, we'll, we'll get this thing tied up by the end of the second round. Yeah. And then I was still sitting here a day later wondering when this was ever going to happen. <laughs> um, so uh, I, was, I was surprised. It, it kind of feels like all the... The quarterback chatter just kind of fed on itself and everyone just universally decided. I do think sometimes there's some groupthink in sports and, and in the NFL. Everybody decided, oh, these quarterbacks aren't as good. And so we're going to treat them as a group rather than really looking, could, could these guys fill a need? I mean, you, you can't tell me. I sat here and watched punters be picked in the fourth round like, oh, this guy one time they downed the ball on the one. Oh, was that is that really more beneficial to, to winning a football game than a quarterback who uh, essentially was his team last year and had three very productive years in college at, at the ACC level? I, I don't know. I guess this year some folks decided it was. Yeah, what's funny too is the variance that we had with the rankings of the quarterbacks in the 2022 draft. Some people had Sam Howell is like the fifth or sixth best quarterback in the draft. Then he had something like Pro Football Focus, which was pretty high on Howell, had him as the number three quarterback in the class. We're talking Sam Howell with Adam Lucas. He is the co-host of the Carolina Insider Podcast, also is a writer for GoHeels.com, which is the official website for North Carolina Athletics. You know, it's funny how things work out. There was a lot, and I mean a lot, of talk about the commanders potentially signing a North Carolina quarterback this offseason, Mitchell Trubisky in free agency. Uh, the commanders reportedly were interested in Trubisky last year. Uh, I know that Trubisky was North Carolina's starting quarterback for just one season, 2016. Sam Howell was Carolina's starting quarterback for three seasons, 2019 through 2021. But how would you compare Howell and Trubisky? To me, today, just evaluating them on the day they came out of college, Sam Howell's clearly proven his ability to do more uh, than, than Mitch Trubisky had at this point in his career. Now, who would I take today? That might be different because Mitch Trubisky's played in the NFL already. But Sam Howell's done a lot of things. I mean, he's been the young guy who kind of had to lead a veteran team. He's been the veteran guy who had to lead a team when pretty much everyone else was gone. Uh, he's gone to an Orange Bowl. He's also had some struggles. I mean, he, he's done a lot. And, and with Mitch, I think we pretty much had just seen the good parts. 
And with Sam Howell, I feel like we've seen the entire arc of a career, which I think can be beneficial when you're trying to figure out what's the floor of this guy and then also what's the ceiling of this guy. For Commanders fans listening who want to learn more about Sam Howell and get excited about Sam Howell, what are the great Sam Howell games as a North Carolina quarterback that Commanders fans should seek out on YouTube? Oh, I mean, you should watch any Sam Howell highlights from this past season when he basically was the offense. Um, he it's one thing to go back two years ago when uh, you had the option of handing the ball to Javante Williams or to Michael Carter, uh, two guys who Commanders fans are familiar with from the NFL. But it's quite another to watch basically anything from the 2021 season when uh, the, the offensive game plan and the defenses also knew this was you have to stop Sam Howell and you probably have got a pretty good chance of beating Carolina. Uh, so every defense that Carolina played this past year was completely game-planned around stop Sam Howe throwing the ball, and then by about midseason, they all realized, oh, he's running it a lot and running over some people, so now we're also going to have to contain him on the ground. We have a lot of Virginia Tech fans who listen to this podcast. Sam Howell's 2021 junior season got off to a rough start with Virginia Tech's 17-10 win over then number 10 North Carolina at Lane Stadium in Blacksburg on September 3rd. The Hokies held Howell to just 17 of 32 passing, held him to just 6.5 yards per pass attempt, intercepted him three times, sacked him six times. Uh, What happened to Howell in Carolina in that game? Everything went wrong. Uh, I think Carolina had a ton of expectations in that game. Uh, You're walking into probably the toughest place to play in the ACC uh, for a season-opening game. And uh, keep in mind, it wasn't just a season-opening game, but this was basically after two years of people not going to games uh, because they no one had been able to go to the 2020 season at all um so 2021 the opener you've got like this year of pent-up excitement of being able to go and carolina just never got going in that first half Uh, they looked better in the second half after they kind of righted themselves but that first half was was bad for everyone the offensive line wasn't great sam howell wasn't great uh and by the time you got to halftime you had allowed virginia tech to get enough momentum to to kind of coast in and get the win So just to net this out with Sam Howell, the notion of him becoming a franchise NFL quarterback isn't far-fetched to you. I mean, we know that this is something that's hard to predict, and you know, I get that you're partial to Howell, but you've been more than willing to be critical in our conversation here, and you do see with Howell the ability to be a franchise NFL quarterback. I think he's got the intangibles that make it possible. I think I probably am not qualified to tell you what the physical characteristics are at the NFL level that you must have these in order to be a franchise quarterback. But I know that he does the things that won games for Carolina and he has the the personality and just the type of leadership skills that you want in that guy who everyone wants to play for. Uh, There's no jealousy of that guy. That guy uh, is just one of many in the locker room, not somebody who treats himself differently than everybody else. He has all those things, and he has the willingness to work hard and to learn um, that I think is going to serve him well. And again, he's not your guy from day one, I don't think. Uh, But by next year at this time, either Washington's going to decide, hey, we like this guy, or I think there might be another team or two that maybe sees him in the preseason or something and thinks, you know, that's that's a guy who could probably help us. Uh, While I have you, former North Carolina receiver Deami Brown, uh, Washington took him in the third round of the 2021 draft. He had a disappointing rookie season, but he was a monster 
at Carolina. Brown, in his 2019 sophomore season, 51 receptions for 1,034 yards and 12 touchdowns, 20.27 yards per catch. Brown, in his 2020 junior season, 55 receptions for 1,099 yards and 8 touchdowns, 19.98 yards per catch. He was a semifinalist for the Bolitnikoff Award. Uh, what do you think of when you think about Diami Brown at Carolina? Boy, the, the deep balls. I mean, he would just run past people and go catch them. Um, and, and just so reliable in that way. And there basically was nobody that ever really figured out how to cover him. And he and Sam Howell had a great connection. Uh, I mean, they're still very close friends off the field, even after Diami's been gone. Um, they've remained close. And so I think that's something to watch in camp. I mean, how, how often does a rookie quarterback go into camp and they already have that connection with one of the guys they're throwing to? Uh, I got to think that's, that's a pretty comfortable feeling for Sam Howell. Yeah, definitely. Adam Lucas, uh, co-host of the Carolina Insider Podcast, a writer for GoHeels.com, which is the official website for North Carolina Athletics. Uh, Adam, thank you very much for your time. Oh, absolutely. Anytime. All right. Good stuff from Adam Lucas on Sam Howell. And up next, the second of our two special guests on this installment of the Al Galdi podcast, Peter Hassett, co-founder of the Great Capitals blog, Russian Machine Never Breaks. We'll go in-depth on the caps off them losing in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs for a fourth consecutive season. What should be the caps approach this offseason? We'll get to that and much more after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Don't forget to subscribe to the Al Galdi podcast. Subscribing costs you nothing and make sure that you never miss an episode. So I, on Monday's show, episode 315, talked at length about the Capitals of the end of their season. They this past Friday night lost to the Florida Panthers 4-3 in overtime at Capital Win Arena in game six to lose in the first round 
of the Stanley Cup playoffs, four games to two, fourth consecutive year that the Caps are eliminated in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. And as I said on Monday's show, there are no easy answers for the Caps in terms of where they go from here. But that doesn't mean that we won't try to find the answers. And so in times of uncertainty with the Caps, we seek wisdom, we seek counsel. And so I'm very pleased to welcome back to the Al Galdi podcast right now, Peter Hassett, co-founder of the Great Caps blog, Russian Machine Never Breaks, RMNB. You can follow Peter on Twitter at Peter Hassett. Uh, Peter is great at talking caps, understands hockey analytics very well. And Peter is here to give us the proper perspective on where the caps are at. Hey, Peter, how are you? I am great. I'm not sad at all about the Capitals losing in six games. How are you? <laughs> I hear you. I uh, like. Hey, being in denial can be a good thing. So uh, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> I'm with you on that. So you know, we're all disappointed with what happened with the Caps. Obviously, before we get to what should be next for the Caps, how do you look back on the series with the Panthers? Like, why ultimately did the Caps lose this series? I think. I think you have to come back to the fact that the Florida Panthers are a vastly superior team. So even if the Capitals had maybe like some high-end scoring talent advantage with Ovechkin, or they had um, better, you know, more experienced coaching with Peter Laviolette, they just couldn't do it against like three really effective scoring lines on the, the Florida Panthers. That's a, that's a very good team. And that the Capitals were even allowed, like able to push them to six games is kind of, you know, something worth maybe celebrating a little bit. If you were to tell me that the Capitals made it six games in the series, I would have said, "Oh, that's nice." And if you would have told me that they were so close to pushing them to like a you know a two game win advantage for for a while there, you know, if Garnet Hathaway's you know empty netter had gone in uh, in in game five, then you know the Capitals or, or sorry, this game four, the Capitals would have been in a really good shape. And I would have said, "Oh, wow, that's fantastic." So I, I have to be a little circumspect about it. It's, it's disappointing that they got eliminated in the first round for four straight years, but they were also, you know, darn good and pretty fearsome against a, a very, very tough team that to many people was the cup favorite. Yeah, and I think that's a perfectly reasonable way of looking at the series. So in terms of what should be next, because that really is the big thing here. I mean, the Caps, to me, they're in this ultimate middle ground of they're too good just to say, hey, they obviously should blow it all up. You know, they keep having 100-point regular seasons, but... The Caps obviously haven't been good enough to get past the first round of the playoffs in each of the last four years now. Would you advocate for a teardown, or do you think that staying the course in some way is the right way to go? I, I don't think I would necessarily recommend that they, they tear it down again, a whole cloth like that. But the, I, th- I think as long as they've got the, you know, the capability to get 100 points, to have top-end scoring talent like Alex Ovechkin, it seems really unlikely that they'll do something that drastic. But they are sort of in a situation where they, you know, the, the front office of the team and even the coaching staff are frustrated with their available talent. I think that they want to do something a little bit more aggressive than they have in the past. I think that they're not, uh, you know, beyond the possibility of shaking up the core, so to speak. But they've said that in the past and they haven't done it. Uh, so we'll, it, it's definitely going to be a more tumultuous summer than we're used to with the Washington Capitals. But how how radical they get, you know, moving to, I don't know, Carlson, Oshie, Backstrom's core seems unlikely. But it, it may be something that they're they're looking into more seriously than they have in the past. Do you think that the Caps should shake up their core? Uh, I mean, if you if you think think about it like this. Uh, Nick Backstrom has a, a, a contract that goes until, what, 2025, I think. He's very well paid. 
I'm not sure that he could pass a physical if he had to today. He's got a really nagging hip injury. That's a big hole in, in your, your top six forwards. Um, John Carlson's an undeniably talented defensive forward, but he was on the ice for like 10 goals in the Florida series. I, I, he's got a ton of skill, but he hasn't been able to that, – that skill is not necessarily enough to offset the, the trouble that he's brought. I don't, I don't necessarily think that the Capitals need to move both those players or anything like that, but they definitely need to acknowledge that maybe like Nick Backstrom isn't up to the job that they, they put in front of him or that John Carlson needs more support with his defensive pair. Like, you know, giving him like a rookie like Martin Farivari for the entire season may have been sort of a miscalculation on their part. So if they don't go as far as, you know, trading one or both of those players, who are very hard to trade, um, I think that they may think of new ways that they need to support them or, or new roles for them. Maybe maybe Nick Backstrom needs to become like a third-line center from here on out. Um, that's kind of a bummer to say, but I, I think that they may, that's that's something that they're certainly aware of. They, they know, you know the injury status of these players, and they definitely know that John Carlson had a, had a brutal game six. So those are things that are, that are definitely in, in the mind of Brian McClellan and his you know, collaborators. Let's get to the goaltending. Uh, goaltending to me was not the Caps' biggest problem in their loss to the Panthers in the first round of this year's Stanley Cup playoffs, but goaltending was the Caps' biggest problem during the regular season. Both Ilya Samsonov and Vitek Vanacek are set to be restricted free agents this offseason. The Caps aren't just going to run it back with those two guys next season, are they? Goodness, I hope not. I think you're absolutely right on both fronts about the regular season and the playoff series. I thought Samsonov was excellent in that Florida series overall. But yeah, they're both restricted free agents. Um, Samsonov's making about $2 million, and Vanacek's basically on his like, entry-level contract, so he's making $700,000. Uh, know, Vanacek would be due a raise if he were to be signed again. And he had an okay regular season. I could see the Capitals bringing one of those two back for a secondary role, but I am I, of everything I'm certain of, I think that the Capitals are going to be looking for a veteran goaltender in free agency. So I would say at least one of the two are, uh, has played the last game with the Washington Capitals. And I think if, if the other one remains, uh, it'll be in a backup role. And I think we should consider that progress. Um, I don't know what they'll be looking for in free agency for replacing those players, but I'm very happy that I think we're at the end of the sort of two-and-a-half-year-long journey of Vanacek versus Samsonov, a very frustrating battle there. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, I think about Ilya Samsonov. Caps took him with that number 22 pick in the 2015 NHL draft. He has been so up and down. He has been so inconsistent. When he's good, he can be great, but when he's bad... He can be awful. Now, this season was his age 24 season, so he is still young. Is there an argument to be made that the Caps just need to be more patient with Samsonov? Or are we now past the point of the Caps waiting for Samsonov to blossom into the franchise goaltender who he was drafted to be? Oh, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. It's one I, I can't answer in, in full earnesty. Like the, You're right that they've given him a dozen chances and he's found so many different ways to blow it, whether it be, you know, like a, a, a goof up behind his own net in last year's postseason, or I think he must've had three opportunities to hold the, the starting spot this season. And through really atrocious play, he lost it. And he and Vanacek both would sort of play well. And then they, they wouldn't be able to sustain it for more than really like three or four games before they would, they would lose the spot to the opponent. Um, I, I, 
I think that the Capitals are probably ready to get off the roller coaster. Um, and the the worst case scenario, I think, is that they see him blossom somewhere else, somewhere out west or something, in in wherever his next club is. And you know, there's there's worse things that could happen than seeing somebody that used to play for the Capitals play well elsewhere. Yeah, well, we have. We have seen that before, a guy leave the Caps and do well elsewhere. Uh, you mentioned defenseman John Carlson. Are the Caps good enough defensively at defensemen? Uh, where would you say that the Caps are at with their defense core? It's a really tough question. If you were to tell me that the that the defensive core would be struggling as much as they were in that Florida series, I think I would have been surprised. I thought that the Capitals had a pretty good blue line for the season. Definitely not, you know, in the, in the league's top ten, but probably not too far outside it. Um, and and John Carlson is sort of this singularly curious player because I mean, it's, it's one of those players where like the advanced stats do give you a little bit of caution, but his boxcar stats, his goals, his assists, his defensive production is undeniable. He's he's it really is an elite defensive forward, but. You know, when you when you see it, it sort of cost as much as it did in that Florida series. It does give you pause. I think that there's a bunch of problems that they need to address. Obviously, they're going to use, lose Justin Schultz to to free agency. Michael Kempney is obviously not coming back in his, in his background role, um, his backup role there. Matt Irwin was a, a pretty good sort of like uh, seventh defender, but I, I really like. I think they had a good season out of Trevor Van Riemsdyk. I think they got a great season out of Nick Jensen and Demetri Orlov. Um, Martin Ferrivari had a good start, but he really eroded as the season went on. I don't think I, I liked much that he played after, say, the new year. So I think they've got some stuff to upgrade there, but nothing as serious, nothing as dire as, you know, like maybe like their top six forward problem or their goalie problem. We're talking Capitals with Peter Hassett, co-founder of the Great Caps blog, Russian Machine Never Breaks. Connor McMichael, the Caps took him with the number 25 pick in the 2019 NHL draft. He, this past regular season, played in just 68 of the Caps' 82 games. He, in the first round series against the Panthers in this year's Stanley Cup playoffs, played in just four of the six games. He's a talented guy. I'm not saying that he's a perfect player, but, you know, we have seen this in the past where the Caps have a young, rising player and, for whatever reason, don't play him as much as some of us think that the Caps should play the guy. Uh, defenseman Nate Schmidt comes to mind. Uh, forwards Andre Burakovsky and Jacob Vrana come to mind. Are we seeing something similar here with Connor McMichael? Uh, it's, it's such a frustrating thing. So I, I have to admit that I have my own sort of biases and, and things that I like to see from the, the game. And obviously the Capitals are not a very mobile, fast team. They're an older team. And when you see a player like Connor McMichael, who does have wheels, it, he he does sort of bring some excitement to the game that the other players don't have. His offensive production, if you say everything except goals, was I would say just behind Ovechkin. I think he you know, shoots like fourteen attempts per hour, and, and Ovechkin's somewhere around like nineteen or twenty. Uh, everyone else is on the team is you know around like ten, for example. Um, he's a, he's a really good productive forward, but he didn't have the shooting percentage to sort of you know c- uh, cement his spot and. If I were to say what he what he feels like to me, I would say it'd be your Veronas or your Virakovskis in previous years. These sort of mobile but not necessarily physical forwards who've got a true scoring talent, but for whatever reason haven't gotten the opportunity to use it. I I, I understand that the team likes to play a certain style. They sort of want all four lines to play basically the same style of hockey. Um, but you know, I was watching like Pittsburgh, New York 
on, on Sunday night, and, and those teams were much faster than the Washington Capitals. It was sort of like a different sport watching them. And it does get a little frustrating to think that the Capitals haven't found a way to make these sort of younger, offensively gifted forwards work with the team. And it's still early in Conor McMichael's career. Um, maybe maybe Peter Laviolette will sort of mellow out a bit and find an opportunity for him. Maybe even a roster spot will open up for him. But yeah, I think he's an interesting player uh, and one worth investing time into for his own development. Because you know, if he turns into a, a Verona-type player, that would be a true gift for this team and give them sort of a secondary scoring threat that sometimes they lack. You mentioned the Caps head coach, Peter Laviolette. Uh, what's your evaluation of the job that he has done as Caps head coach? I'm I'm so mean about coaches. I think he's a, a above replacement level coach. He's a he gets a B plus, and I'm I'm, I'm barely typing in the plus there. He, I, I think he did a fine job tactically against the Florida Panthers against Andrew Burnett, who's you know a rookie head coach down there. Um, I think he did some interesting things with you know like a four checking pressure uh, against like the, the Florida Panthers, for example. I think they didn't lose that series because of like a coaching mismatch, and you could possibly argue that the previous two postseasons were that. Uh, even even Todd Reardon's season, uh, you know, the, the Capitals sort of got laughed out of the barn in, in the, the, the previous two playoff series, and some of that was on Peter Laviolette just not being prepared in the in the, in the, in the twenty nineteen uh, uh, sorry the twenty twenty one playoffs. That said, I, I, I think he's a fine coach. He's a defensive, defense-first coach. Uh, he doesn't necessarily let the Capitals score, but I'm not so much sure that the Capitals sort of like roster composition, their constitution and skaters would even allow them to do the sort of like soaring, you know, wild fun offense that you would, you know, want as a fan, but it may also sort of drive you bonkers sometimes. I'm, I'm thinking of like maybe like, in Capitals history, the sort of like early Boudreaux seasons, like your, your 20, 2008, 2009 Capitals had tons of offense and they just did whatever they could to like control the game. And these Capitals are a little bit more staid. They're a little bit more sedate. And, um, they, you know, they, they're kind of boring when they try to do like zone entries, for example, but it's a ton of, you know, banking the puck off the boards and chasing it down. Hopefully blow the ball away. That's, and, you know, they don't get a ton of quality rush chances. That's a little bit uh, unfortunate. And I think that the Capitals have the opportunity to, to do more interesting things, but I don't think he's on the hot seat whatsoever. It's just a, it's just the way it is, I guess. It was a, a team that's of this particular age. He's definitely the coach that uh, you know the, the team president, Dick Patrick, and the general manager, Brian McClellan, won at this time. And I guess that's all we have to deal with. I always enjoy talking hockey analytics with you. What are the really interesting aspects of the Caps' first-round series against the Panthers in this year's Stanley Cup playoffs was how the Caps, when it came to the puck possession battle, lost by quite a bit in terms of quantity, but actually won in terms of quality. Uh, If you go by the data on natural stat trick, the Caps for the series had just 237 5-on-5 shot attempts to the Panthers' 301 but also had 60 high danger five on five shot attempts to the Panthers 57. Is that a smart way to play to sacrifice quantity for quality? Yeah, that's a great question. I think going up against like the Panthers, I don't think you have much of a choice. Like, you know, you're going to, you're going to have the puck less than your opponent. If you're going up against the Florida Panthers, and I thought the Capitals did an excellent job of keeping the Panthers out of the slot, keeping them out of the high danger areas. I think that was, that was itself like a, a micro victory, but with the, 
with the amount of opportunities that the Panthers had, especially in like the back halves of those games, you can see it in like the blown leads, for example. Volume at some point adds up, especially if you don't have flawless defense. So, you know, if John Carlson gets blown by and Martin Zervard misses his assignment, that puck can end up in the back of the net or your your forwards have a trouble clearing the crease. Even if they get you know, a paucity of those high danger chances, being able to secure them is is deadly in a, in a six game series. I, I think yeah, the Washington Capitals didn't have a chance. They, there was no reasonable possibility that they would have like controlled like sixty percent of the shot attempts. And just being able to keep the Panthers out of the crease, out of the high danger areas, was a mitigation of sort of inevitability. And that's I think a, the best they could have hoped for um, in, in that circumstance. And just I guess they just wish that they you know, kept those handful of chances out of the net a little better. One of the things about the Caps series against the Panthers that will always stick with me is the extent to which the Caps dominated the Panthers in special teams and yet lost the series. Like, if you told me going into this first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs, hey, the Caps in this series are going to go 18 for 18 on the penalty kill and 7 for 24 on the power play, you would have loved the chance for the Caps to pull off the upset and knock off the President's Trophy winning Panthers, but instead, the Caps lost the series and lost it in six games. Like, dominated special teams didn't even take the series to a seventh game. Is this just a bizarre occurrence and we shouldn't read too much into it, or is there a lesson here of, you know, as much as people talk about the importance of special teams, they only matter so much? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up, because killing 18 penalties, I think, is a massive win. And if you were to tell me nothing about the playoff series except for that the Capitals killed 18 of 18 penalties, I would have thought, oh, cool, the Capitals are in the second round. Not quite the reality we had. So I, I, I think I think this is a weird series in that the Capitals were so good on the penalty kill. And a lot of that is on the skaters on that PK unit, which were good all season. I think they were you know, in the top 10 round all season in, in killing penalties. But man, they really put it together. I think that the, the Panthers only had 15 shots in those 18 power plays. So like Samsonov absolutely deserves credit for killing those penalties with him, but he didn't have that much work to do. Uh, so I, I think that was a tremendous victory and that they were able to convert on their power play opportunities, at least when they could, is big as well. I, I don't think that that was the deciding factor. I think that was the, sort of the best argument for the Capitals to be you know, so darn close from getting that 3-1 lead in the first place. But I think ultimately, in this case at least, 5-on-5 five five wins out and you know, outweighs whatever influence the, the, the special teams battle had, which was an unambiguous win for the Capitals. Uh, we have yet to discuss Alex Ovechkin. Are you seeing any erosion in his game, or is he still the elite goal scorer who he appears to be? He is, without a doubt, still an elite goal scorer. Uh, when we were talking about Connor McMichael earlier and his sort of like individual offensive rates, Ovechkin's still like right around 20 shot attempts per hour, which is, it, it, when he's at 20%, I, uh, 20, 20 shot attempts per hour, I go, Ovechkin's fine. He's getting his looks during five on five. He scored 50 goals. I, I think it's undeniable that he is an extremely special player. And now his specialness is, is not just on his like shot volume or even his like playmaking because his assists are up there as well. But he, like his 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 durability, his rush machine never breaks this of him, is still fantastic. And I, I think as long as he can keep that, like I think if we're looking for like a, a canary in the coal mine, so to speak, if his shot volume drops to like 
15 shot attempts per hour or 10, God goodness, like help us if that's the case, then I think we, we should really be worried about Alex Ovechkin's ability to like chase Wayne Gretzky. But I, I'm, I'm not too worried about him. I would like to see him get more support during five on five. The fact that he didn't get a, a, you know, an even strength goal this series or even like last postseason, those that, that really does worry me. But his, his ability to score during the regular season, I don't think is in doubt right now. And his ability to do so into the future even with that shoulder injury that was nagging him late in the season in the playoffs, I, I'm not. I'm not worried about Ostevichkin. I think he's well. He's as good as everyone thinks he is. He's a very, very, very special player, and I think he'll continue to be for a little bit longer. Uh, fingers crossed. And if you're looking for for a warning sign, look at his shot volume. Yeah, that's a great point. I don't want to jinx anything, but it really is starting to feel like Alex Ovechkin breaking Wayne Gretzky's all-time record for most regular season goals in an NHL career is going to happen. You know, it just feels like Ovechkin is on this march and he's not going to be denied, but we shall see. Uh, Peter Hassett, co-founder of the outstanding Caps blog, Russian Machine Never Breaks. Uh, Very good to catch up with the man and get your thoughts on where exactly the Caps are at here. All the best to you. You're the best, Al. Thank you so much. Well, I say what I'm about to say, not as a hot take, not to be dramatic, but because I mean what I'm about to say. What we saw from the Nationals on Monday night was rock bottom for their 2022 season so far. Uh, I have to add the so far because who knows how much worse things might get for the Nats this season. But the Nats on Monday night were a special kind of bad. Uh, Bad hitting, bad fielding, bad pitching, all of it in a loss at a mediocre team in front of a horrendous crowd. An 8-2 loss at the Miami Marlins in game one of a three-game series and a six-game road trip. The official attendance for the game, a mere 6,601. That's a Marlins problem. Not a Nats problem, but still, the atmospheres at Marlins home games for years have been so bad. This season, no exception. And the Nats this season, unfortunately, are so bad. Uh, the Nats this season now are 12 and 25, including 6 and 18 since a 6 and 7 start to the season. The Nats are last in the National League East. The Nats now have an NL East worst run differential of minus 42. Now, the Nats are a rebuilding team. I have said, that this Nats season is in no way about wins and losses, and this Nats season is in no way about wins and losses. But geez, the Nats are a really bad team. You know, the Marlins this season actually are decent. Now, the record isn't that good. The Marlins this season now are 16 and 19, but uh, they do have a run differential of plus 16. But consider this in terms of the Nats' ineptitude this season. So the Nats in this 2022 regular season, as we speak, are on pace to lose 110 games. Think about that, 110 losses. Now, do I expect the Nats to finish with 110 losses? No. But you know what? I can't dismiss the possibility of the Nats finishing this season with 110 losses. We're 37 games into the Nats' 2022 regular season. We're nearly a quarter of the way into the Nats' 162-game 2022 regular season. Like, the season is happening, okay? And the Nats have just 12 wins over 37 regular season games. Uh, We, on Monday night, had yet another bad game for the Nats offense. Just two runs, 
just five hits, all of which were singles. The Nats hit for like no power this year. Uh, the Nats totaled just one walk. Now, the Moreland starting pitcher, Sandy Alcantara, is a really good starting pitcher. He, on Monday night, allowed just one run in eight innings. See, this season now, over eight starts, has an ERA at 249. But the Nats on Monday night had basically nothing going on offensively. Uh, Nelson Cruz was scratched from the Nats starting lineup due to illness. Uh, Juan Soto continues to be in a rut, certainly by his standards. He, on Monday night, as the Nats starting right fielder and number two batter, went 0 for 4 left three men on base. Michael Franco on Monday night as an at starting third baseman and number six batter 0 for 4 with two strikeouts. He left five men on base. D. Strange Gordon on Monday night as an at starting shortstop and number eight batter went 0 for 4. Uh, Josh Bell on Monday night, he is an at starting first baseman and number three batter went one for four with a single. Okay. I mean, the Nats' two runs came in the first and ninth innings on singles. Uh, Yadiel Hernandez as an at starting DH and number four batter, one for four. He and the Nats, one run first, a one out opposite field RBI single off the glove of the Marlins shortstop. Eric Gonzalez on an 0-2 pitch for a one nothing Nats lead. And Lane Thomas as the Nats starting left fielder and number seven batter. He went one for four. He in a Nats one run ninth had a one-out RBI infield single on a ball that was fielded by the pitcher. How often do you see that, an infield single on a ball fielded by the pitcher? But that was your Nats offense right there on Monday night. Now, I mentioned Lane Thomas. He, on Monday night, was part of a hideous defensive sequence for the Nats. The Nats lately have been really sloppy defensively. And this sequence that I'm about to describe to you was really the ultimate in defensive sloppiness for the Nats this season so far. Again, you got to keep saying so far. (laughs) But Lane Thomas in a Marlins four-run seventh committed a throwing error on a play on which the Nats committed two errors with no outs, the bases loaded, and the Nats trailing 4-1. Nats reliever Victor Arano gave up a single to Jorge Soler to left field. Thomas made an errant throw to catcher K-Bert Ruiz at home played. Ruiz had trouble catching the ball, then had trouble finding the ball, which ended up rolling toward first base. Arano then picked up the ball behind the first baseline, and in trying to throw the ball to second base, threw the ball into center field. Then the Nats center fielder, Victor Robles, had to dive stomach first to get the ball before it rolled deep into the right center field gap. And then Robles had trouble getting the ball out of his glove and, in fact, dropped the ball onto the outfield grass. The amount of sloppiness by the Nats on this play was mind-boggling. The two errors, then the struggles of Kbert Ruiz, and then the struggles of Victor Robles. Four guys on this play had problems. Uh, We also had another bad defensive moment for the Nats in the bottom of the third. Second baseman Cesar Hernandez in the bottom of the third had a defensive fail on a leadoff single by Jorge Soler. Uh, The single by Soler came on a grounder that was hit right to Hernandez, who was playing on the third base side of second base in a shift, but Hernandez failed to make a backhanded catch of the grounder while down on his left knee. Now look, Soler did hit the ball really hard, okay? This was not necessarily an easy play to make, but again, the ball was hit right to Cesar Hernandez. The positioning on the shift worked to perfection, but Hernandez did make the play. Uh, Hernandez on Monday night as the Nats' number one batter went one for three with an infield single and a walk. He has been drawing more walks lately. That has been good from Cesar Hernandez. Uh, Another little nugget for the Nats' offense 
on Monday night. Uh, Victor Robles, so he on Monday night was an at-starting center fielder and number nine batter. He went 0 for 3 with a hit-by-pitch and a stolen base. Robles in the top of the second drew a one-out hit-by-pitch and had a stolen base. And I bring all of this up because the stolen base, incredibly, was Robles's first stolen base of the season. In fact, this was his first stolen base attempt of the season. This is Victor Robles, a guy known for his speed, a guy who in the 2019 season went 28 for 37 on stolen bases. And in yet another sign of Victor Robles just falling off precipitously since he was what he was in 2019, which is not a great offensive player, but a good enough offensive player to go with being a spectacular defensive player, a guy who got on base enough and had the uh, wherewithal enough to accumulate 28 stolen bases in the 2019 season. He now in this 2022 season doesn't get his first stolen base. Again, doesn't register his first stolen base attempt until game number 37 for the Nats in their 2022 regular season. I mean, think about that. That really stood out to me. So bad hitting for the Nats on Monday night, bad fielding for the Nats on Monday night, and bad pitching for the Nats on Monday night. Aaron Sanchez was the Nats starting pitcher, and he struggled. Uh, Sanchez allowed four runs in three and two-thirds innings. He gave up eight hits, a homer, four doubles, and three singles. He issued three walks, one of which was intentional. He recorded just two strikeouts. He threw 74 pitches, 46 strikes versus 28 balls. Uh, Sanchez gave up all four of the runs that he allowed in this game in the bottom of the second, during which he allowed six consecutive Marlins batters to reach base with one out. And listen to the frequency with which Sanchez put people on base despite having two strikes on those people. Uh, Sanchez in that four-run Marlins second, he gave up a one-out solo homer to Abisail Garcia to center field on a 1-2 pitch to tie the game at one. The homer went a projected 402 feet per stat cast. Sanchez issued a one-out seven-pitch walk of Brian Anderson despite him having been down in the count at 1.02. Sanchez gave up a one-out double to Brian De La Cruz down the left field line on a 1-2 pitch. Sanchez gave up a one-out two-run single to Eric Gonzalez. Now, there was some bad luck on this play for Sanchez because he induced weak contact. Uh, The ball made its way up the middle through a drawn-in Nats infield, but still the result was a two-run single. Marlins took a 3-1 lead. Then Sanchez gave up a one-out opposite field double to Jacob Stallings off the right field warning track on a 1-2 pitch. And then Sanchez gave up a one-out RBI single to Jazz Chisholm Jr. to right center field for a 4-1 Marlins lead. Again, Sanchez allowed six straight Marlins batters to reach base with one out in what ended up being a four-run Marlins second. Sanchez did toss a scoreless bottom of the third, but he in that inning gave up a leadoff single to Jorge Soler, despite him having been down to the count at 1.12, and then giving up a first-pitch double to Garrett Cooper to deep left center field. That was the inning in which we had the Cesar Hernandez play that was not made. And then Sanchez, in the bottom of the fourth, issued a leadoff six-pitch walk of Eric Gonzalez, despite him having been down in the count at 1.12, gave up a two-out double to Jazz Chisholm Jr. to right field, despite him having been down in the count at 1.12. And then Sanchez got pulled from the game. So many instances of Sanchez having Marlins batters down 1-2 or 0-2, and Sanchez just not getting those guys out. I mean, never mind not striking those guys out, just not getting those guys out, period. This is one of the big problems with a guy like Aaron Sanchez, who is a pitch-to-contact pitcher, 
as opposed to being a strikeout pitcher. He's also a reclamation project, and he really is just here right now as a placeholder until younger slash better Nats starting pitchers are good to go. But that may be a while. We'll see. I mean, the Nats still are waiting on Steven Strasburg and Joe Ross to get to being ready to pitch at the major league level this season. But I'm not holding my breath on that happening anytime soon. Now, those guys are on the mend, and it may be that over the next few weeks, we do see those guys pitching for the Nats at the major league level, and hopefully we will be seeing those guys sooner rather than later. But knowing those guys' injury histories, uh, you do not hold your breath in waiting on them uh, to pitch for the Nats at the major league level this year. But five major league starts now for Aaron Sanchez for the Nats this season. He has an ERA of 794, okay? I mean, he has done a good job, actually, of throwing strikes. He hasn't been, like, wretched in all five of the starts, but the bottom line is over the five starts, he has an ERA of 794. The Nats signed Sanchez to a minor league deal back in March. Uh, As for the Nats relief pitching on Monday night, four Nats relievers combined to give up four runs in four into third innings. Coral Edwards Jr. tossed one in a third perfect innings. He was good. Austin Voth uh, tossed a scoreless bottom of the sixth, but that gave up back-to-back singles to begin the bottom of the seventh. He ended up being charged with two runs in what ended up being that four-run Marlins seventh. The real culprit in that inning was Victor Rano. Uh, he, in that Marlins four-run seventh, was charged with two runs, gave up three singles and a double and committed a throwing error. And then Erasmo Ramirez was good in the bottom of the eighth. He tossed a scoreless bottom of the eighth. Game two for the Nats at the Marlins will be on Tuesday evening at 6.40. Yoan Adon will be the Nats starting pitcher. Things are not good for the Nats right now. Again, this season isn't about wins and losses, but this season is about finding some building blocks and acquiring more prospects. And right now, it just feels like the cupboard for the Nats is particularly bare. This is a really bad team. Uh, The key here is for younger guys to start being better, and also even for older guys to start being better so that you can trade those older guys to get some more good younger guys. But right now, there are a lot of Nats who aren't playing well, and consequently, the team as a whole is in one of the worst spots it's been in in a long time. Again, on pace to lose 110 games this season. Well, the Orioles know a thing or two about 100 lost seasons. The O's on Monday night began a stretch of 15 consecutive games against teams in the American League East. This is a tough stretch, especially considering that each of the first 10 games in the stretch is against the New York Yankees or Tampa Bay Rays. Those two teams are the top two teams in the AL East so far this season, and seven of those first 10 games are against the Yankees, who so far this season have been the best team in the majors by miles. And so the O's, who right now are banged up big time, not surprisingly lost on Monday night in game one of a four-game series against the Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. A 6-2 loss. The O's this season now are 14-22. and The Yankees this season now or a major league best 26 and 9. Uh, Monday night's loss was yet another bad game for the Orioles' offense. Remember, the O's this past weekend got swept in three games at the lowly Detroit Tigers. Uh, the O's in that series totaled just three runs over the three games. The O's on Monday night, just two runs, just three hits, just two walks. Struck out 11 times. Uh, outfielder Austin Hayes did not play for a fourth consecutive game 
due to a left hand laceration. Shortstop Jorge Mateo did not play due to left shoulder and chest contusions. First baseman and left fielder Ryan Mountcastle is on the 10-day injured list with a left wrist slash left forearm strain. A lot of missing players for the O's right now, both in terms of position players and pitchers. Uh, the bright spot for the Orioles offense on Monday night was Anthony Santander. He is the Orioles starting right fielder and number three batter. Hit two solo homers. Uh, he had a leadoff homer on a 1-2 pitch in the bottom of the fourth, and he had a one-out solo homer on a 1-2 pitch in the bottom of the ninth. But those homers were not nearly enough to beat the mighty Yankees. Uh, the Yankees offense has been tremendous, and the Yankees on Monday night got to the Orioles starting pitcher Kyle Bradish. Uh, Bradish allowed four runs in four and a third innings. He gave up eight hits, a homer, a double, and six singles. He issued three walks. He over 84 pitches through just 48 strikes versus 36 balls. He did record six strikeouts. Uh, Bradish tossed two scoreless innings, but then gave up a run in the top of the third on a two-out RBI double by John Carlos Stanton, and then gave up three runs in the top of the fourth on a one-out three-run homer by Jose Trevino. The Yankees this season now have an American League best team OPS of 749. The Yankees lineup is merciless. So this was a stiff test for Kyle Bradish on Monday night. Here was those manager Brandon Hyde during his post-game press conference on Monday night on Kyle Bradish. Well, he had that long first inning, did a nice job getting out of it, putting up a zero. Um, and then he gave up that uh, three-run homer to Trevino, kind of a the opposite field homer there. Um, I just didn't think that his breaking ball was as good tonight as it was in St. Louis. I thought there was a lot of arm side and up misses with his fastball. Just Maybe he was over-amped early, but I just didn't think his command was as good tonight as, as it has been. Is this the kind of up-and-down performance that you can, can kind of expect from a, from a rookie? Well, he's a young starter that is only got a few starts under his belt. He's facing the Yankees, and he just um, thought he had good stuff, just didn't quite command it the, the way he has been the last couple starts. Yeah, so Monday night start was Kyle Bradish's fourth major league start. He has been good in starts one and three. He has struggled in starts two and four. Uh, the O's on April 29th recalled Bradish from AAA Norfolk. Bradish in a 3-1 loss to the Boston Red Sox at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on April 29th in his major league debut was good. Three runs, two earned in six innings. He in the top of the second allowed three runs, but he then retired 13 of the final 14 batters he faced. Then Bradish in a 9-4 win over the Minnesota Twins at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on May 4th allowed four runs in four innings. Began his outing by tossing three scoreless innings, but then allowed four runs in the top of the fourth. And then Bradish in his most recent outing prior to Monday night's was excellent. 5-3 win at the St. Louis Cardinals last Tuesday night, May 10th. Two runs in seven innings, 11 strikeouts versus no walks. Uh, relieving Kyle Bradish on Monday night was Keegan Aiken. He was really good. He tossed three and two-thirds scoreless innings with three strikeouts. Uh, Aiken has done a nice job this season in converting from a starting pitcher to a reliever. Aiken's ERA for the season now is 146. Game two for the O's against the Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards will be on Tuesday night at 7.05. Spencer Watkins will be the Orioles' starting pitcher.
And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Wednesday show, episode 317, will feature plenty on the commanders. Also, I will react to whatever happens with the Wizards in Tuesday night's NBA draft lottery. Our Wizards have the 10th best chance of winning this year's NBA Draft Lottery. They have a 3% chance of winning this year's NBA Draft Lottery. I am not counting on good luck for the Wizards in the NBA Draft Lottery because they pretty much never have good luck in the NBA Draft Lottery, but we shall see what goes down. Uh, And on Wednesday's show, we'll talk Nationals and Orioles. Game two for the Nats at the Miami Marlins will be on Tuesday evening at 6.40. Game two for the Orioles against the New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards will be on Tuesday night at 7.05. Have a great rest of your Tuesday, and they'll talk to you on Wednesday. Dayron Payne.